what we've been doing as a church is we've been kind of going through Genesis. We're kind of going through the series of looking our way to the cross. And as I've said before, the cross begins in Genesis. Some people think, well, the Old Testament's just the Old Testament. That's some great stories there, and there's a lot of lightning bolts and stuff like that. Ooh, those are, you know, I don't understand that. But the New Testament, that's when the cross begins. Listen, the cross begins in Genesis. Because God's all about grace. He's all about these things. And we've been looking at some of these things, and these are theological concepts that we, we are dealing with. And I've, I've thought about this. Why are we going through some of these theological things? There's three things I want to state before we get into this. Number one is this. Most problems in life are based on an incorrect view of God. Let me say that again. Most of the problems that we face are because of an incorrect view of God. If we understood who God was in His power, in His might, in His plan, as it's been revealed in Scripture, most of the problems that we have that we try to do ourselves, finish ourselves, complete ourselves, we would realize, well, if we understood who God was, we'd be gladly to give those problems, those issues up to the God who cares about us. And, and that's why we're going through some of these foundational things so we can understand who God is. Because too many times we look at the things from our point of view instead of God's point of view. Your view in this area might be dusty. It might be old. And some of you may need to get glasses. I was with a friend who, for like a year or two, he kept going, man, I just can't figure this out. And then someone was, we were kind of trading around glasses to see what, who's got the strongest things sometimes you put it on. He puts some on and goes, I can see. He's never had glasses on before. And he quickly went to the eye doctor and got glasses. Most of our problems stem from an incorrect view of God. And for months, we're going to flush that out. We're going to see what that looks like in life. Because some of you are dealing with burdens. You're dealing with struggles because you don't understand who God is in His beauty, in His might, in His holiness, in His love. And when we start to see that more clearly, we'll see what our circumstances and issues in life are more through his perspective. So part of Sunday is going to be putting on the right glasses. I'm going to help you do that as we walk through Scripture. In fact, just so you know, Pastor Cody loves to study these things. There are issues I'm still thinking about, I'm still struggling with, theologically, that I'm, I can't wait as we walk through this. I myself am going to learn with you. I don't have it all down. We're looking at these theological issues because most of our problems in life are based on an incorrect view of God, and we'll get through that. Number two, because there are many days we have two things in our hand. <clears throat> How many believe that God is good? Okay. He is so good. He is so good to us. So we, we have that in one hand, but then you have a day like you had this past week where you go, oh! You have a day where you just go, how can this be? I have all this suffering. I have all this pain. There's so much junk. There's so much, oh, things I don't have. I wish, I wish. And you have two things in your hands. And you just, how do you compare those? How do you put these two together? Well, I think it's important that we look through Scripture and understand this. That the reality of God, that He's good, and the reality of this horrible, painful day. And for some of you, you can't put the two together. It's hard for you to just hold these two together. But I believe when we put the two together, especially in prayer, we'll see the reality of God's sovereignty and the beauty of you is 
and even in life, how we struggle through and how God has a plan. He's working this out to redeem history. We have that struggle. How do we face life with difficulties and trials? Well, we're going to dig through Scripture and get this in us. And the third thing is this. So we can have better days on the dark days. For instance, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 39. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up. Pastor John in the back has some Bibles. I encourage you, we've got some Bibles. If you need a Bible, Psalm 39. Psalm 39. Turn to Psalm 39. You know, Pastor John read Psalm 34, a verse out of Psalm 34. It's one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. And uh, there's, there's just great lines in Psalm 34. I hope we get to that some month where we can just take the whole month and just memorize and dig into Psalm 34. It's, it's, it's uplifting because you got, you know, bless the Lord of my soul. Um, this poor man cried. The Lord heard him, saved him from all of his troubles. Um, there's just some great stuff in Psalm 34. But then, because a lot of Psalms are like that. You get some beautiful passages where you, they become songs. They're uplifting. Rarely do you find Psalms like Psalm 39. And some of you live Psalm 39 every day. The circumstances around you, you feel and bleed Psalm 39. Some of you fake it. Some of you look rosy and nice on the outside, but inside there is turmoil. You're living Psalm 39. Look at some of the words here. I said I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I'll put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. But when I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me as I meditated. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my dears a mere handbreadth. The span of my ears are nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. A man has a mere phantom as he goes and to and fro. He, he just, so there's just such desperation and emptiness. Every verse is filled like this in this psalm. Most psalms end with great stuff. Look, look at verse 13. It doesn't end like that. Look away from me that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. Look at me a second. Some of you know what those days are like. Some of you taste that often. But I love how this is written. In the Hebrew, it's written in a way, in a poetic way, where the first part and the second part, they all build up right to the center verse. Look at verse 7. This is why, as a church, we're going through the Old Testament looking our way to the cross so you can, in your days where you just go, I can't do it anymore, you can say all Psalm 39, but in the end, you able, right at the point, right in the center, you say this, but now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. And then he carries on with the rest of just, oh, suffering and pain. One little spark is right in the middle of this chapter. I love this chapter. Some of you had bad, horrible, tough times. 
but right in the center of it, may you be like this chapter. My hope is in you. That's why we're going through these sections of Scripture. Some of you have an incorrect view of God. We want to correct our view. We want to get the right glasses on. Look through Scripture and understand this concept of who God is. Because there's days where you have these two things in your hand. God is so good, but there's so much pain and suffering. And in the end, we want to say, my hope is in you. So when your world falls apart, when everything is just crumbling, you don't know what to do, when the room is dark, you don't know how to get out, there are some important things we need to know. That's what Genesis is all about. Laying these foundations of what we are to believe and know about God. And we've been going through some of these things. We've got up on screen here some of the things that we've been talking about. Number one, God is the creator. He is the creator. We are created in his image. He is God. We didn't take much time to talk about that. In fact, we need to spend a whole sermon on that. We've just briefly talked about it because we'll get to some of these as we go through the Old and New Testament. He's creator. That has to be a foundation. I'm, I'm amazed at how the world is pressing us into their mold, which they think is important, saying this is what your image should be. This is what it should be about. And no wonder people are suffering and, and looking to all other ways to fill the emptiness because they think that's what our image should be about. If we realize that God is the creator and we're created in his image, that changes everything. Because I'm created in his image, nothing can shake my self-image. I'm created in the image of God. And we'll get to that as we look through passages. God is creator. The second thing we talked about, and this is huge, God is always about grace god is grace especially in the old testament and in the new so many times you get this concept where the old testament is all about law and and just suffering and pain and works listen we will get to the law and the old testament is law and when jesus come he shows that grace but god is grace in the old testament it's beautiful god doesn't change he's not like lightning bolts one day then jesus comes oh now he's handing out flowers no God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is grace. He's grace in the Old Testament. And as you read through Genesis, remind yourself, look at the grace and the beauty of God. He's grace. Another thing we've talked about is the promise of God. And we'll see this throughout Scripture. God is a God who makes promises. He's a God who makes promises. We're going to start to look at what some of those promises are. And out of those promises is the belief of man and faith. We looked at the covenant of God. God is all in... If you, I hope that you're able to just be able to say this so quickly when you think of the Old Testament. God is all about restoration in the relationship. Remember that. Restoration in the relationship. And that's something you can share with your neighbor, with your coworker, with your friends. God is not this lightning bolt God, because so many people have an incorrect view of God. He's all about restoration in the relationship. He's all about seeking to restore us. Covenant. Another thing, he's a trustworthy God. Just this last week, I was looking at my notes that when we talked about just God is trustworthy. Abraham takes his son, and I thought, you know, I look at the example we use as a rope and stuff. He's so trustworthy. It just reminded me that God is trustworthy. We can trust him. 
Another thing we've talked about is the provision of God. God provides. He does. The Lord provides. He is our Jehovah Jireh. Or the Yahweh Jireh. He is Yahweh. He is Lord. He provides. Genesis 22. And last week we looked at (laughs) God is unfailing with His failing people. He does not fail. There is continuation in His plan of redemption. I said this, God uses people who fail to fulfill His purpose. God will keep His promise regardless of the character of His people. Praise God, because if you saw my life, you'd be like, oh, Pastor Cody. He doesn't fail with a failure like you. Amen? He doesn't fail. He will not fail. And listen, it's not that we only look at Genesis 22 and say, well, here is where God provides and we go on. We are going to look at some of these concepts throughout the Old Testament because we'll see that God slowly, progressively reveals Himself more and more so that the people can trust Him. Just so you know, I've been doing that with you. Even before I came to this church, and the Lord called me to this church, I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm going to take a half a year to a year to let the people learn who I am so they can trust me. So you can get to know me. That's why when I walk up with a backpack, you're like, okay, there's Pastor Cody. Then I really confuse you when I have a tie on. Okay, what's really going on with this guy? But for six months to a year, my goal is to get to know you so you can trust me and I can trust you and then I'm going to start pushing you, stretching you as we see what the Lord has called us to do, called us to be, that we have not only a privilege to worship Him, we have a responsibility. I'm going to start stretching you in some of those areas. But I can't just come the first day and just go, let's go do it for the kingdom and let's, I hold up the big banner and trumpet and let's just go and somebody be like, well, who is this guy? I'm taking my time so you can get to know me and trust me and then we're going to just, we're going to do some serious things for the kingdom. I'm going to stretch you. It's going to be hard. I'm going to stretch myself. But God is trustworthy, amen? So he slowly, progressively reveals himself so people learn to trust him more and more No wonder there's martyrs in Scripture. Because their eyes are on the thickness of the fog. Their eyes are on the God who controls every circumstance of their life. They know God. Remember the line, do you trust God? It depends on how well you know Him. And that's what Scripture is all about, revealing Himself so we would come to know Him. So we will look at some of these themes. In fact, we didn't even talk about God's plan in choosing certain people. The big term there is election. What's all that all about? We will, we will look at some of those things as we walk through the Old Testament and New Testament. These are some of the foundational things that we see. There's a privilege when it comes to preaching the Word of God. Every Sunday I get this joy. I'm just going, this is great. But then I get this weariness like, wow, lives are at stake. And when we deal with some theological topics that are very tough, I kind of get nervous, like the topic today. So we're going to talk today about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. And I wrote this down. 
God is in total and constant control of all the events. He is sovereign. And it's in Scripture. Listen to this. Throughout the Old Testament and the New, God continues to reveal Himself and let the people know, I am sovereign. And that's a foundation that they are to stand upon when the world collides and collapses. They can at least say God is sovereign. In fact, to help you with this, I got one of the books that's on the shelf when I work on my sermons. It's a thesaurus. You know what that is? A lot of different words with you know, meaning. Here's some words. Sometimes because the word sovereign, you think, well, what, what, okay. Ruling. Reigning. He's empowered. God is enthroned. He's governing. He's authoritative. He's independent. He's not dependent on us. He's not up there going, well, hopefully, you know, the church will go, I'm just waiting to see. No. He's sovereign. He's self-ruling. He's exalted. He's excellent. He's foremost. He's the principal. He's the chief. He is sovereign. So these next three Sundays, we're going to look at the sovereignty of God in the story of Joseph. So let's pray. Father God, we know that today in our world there are many things that are eroding at this concept that you are God and you are sovereign, that you are in control. And there are many events in life that happen that we, we are perplexed and we do not understand this concept that you are in control. How, if you were in control, how could this happen? So Lord, instead of coming with cool, quaint words, we're just going to look at Scripture and you speak to us. Lord, it says that the Word of God is living and active, powerful, sharper than any sword, piercing, dividing, asunder, soul, and discerner to the thoughts and intents of our heart. So Lord, guide us today as we look at some of these big issues in life and we lean upon your sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 37. First book of the Bible, unless you just have a New Testament, then use your neighbor's Bible. Genesis 37. Again, these stories that we have in the Old Testament are so well written, they're so crafted, so put together, and there are certain parts of stories that we wonder, like, what what happened those three days when Abraham was walking to sacrifice his son? The Bible doesn't tell us. We we wonder, we just think, wow, there's just such great stuff in here, and this is one of those stories where you just go, yes, there's just so much depth in the life of Joseph. There's so much perplexity in the life of Joseph. There's so much heroism, but there's so much misery. How many of you have perfect families? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay, Pastor John does back there. Okay, finally. I mean, you want to know a perfect family? Well, it's not my family. But you can be assured that we don't have perfect families except the life of Christ. But God will use families who are just messed up for His purpose in the plan of redemption. Even 
a messed up life like yours. So here is one of the beginning stories of the life of Joseph. And when I read this story, and when you read 37 through 50, I want you to think of these questions. So maybe write the first one down. Is God in control? Now some of you have been in the church your whole life, or you've been in church a lot, you just go, well, of course he's in control. No, no, just really think. Is he in control? Is he sovereign? And think about that after every chapter you read. Just go, is he in control? Did you just see what happened? There's some crazy stuff that's going on here. Is he in control? Is God sovereign? And some of you may even go a little bit deeper with questions like this. Well, if he's in control of everything, here's some of the things I think. Is God just the master puppeteer pulling our strings? Well, if he's sovereign, if he's in control, then surely that must just lead that he is in control of everything and I have no choice. There's no freedom. Is free will just an illusion? Those are valid questions to ask. Is God just a spectator at what man does? He gets the earth spinning and he's from a distance watching, hoping things will turn out to be the way he wants it. These are questions you may ask. Is there chance? Well, I think that a lot when I go fishing. <laughs> How come that guy got all fish? Oh man! Well, just, chance is he was. Is there such thing as a thing as chance? Well, we'll look at scripture. Then we're going to ask questions like this: Does God take care of big things, but he doesn't really sweat the little things? Well, God's in control of big things. Like, well, I'm sure God set up my marriage to be with Amber, but the little things like, well, what I'm going to eat today, he's not in control of that stuff. Well, where do we go? Then some of you may even lead to this. Does suffering fall in the will of God? How many of you in the last 20 years had to deal with sickness or illness more than just a cold? Raise your hand. Is God in control of all things? Well, some of you might be just going, well, God is in control. Oh, then your hands are in your pockets. Well, I don't know about suffering and pain. Listen, let us use the word of God to guide us in these questions. My whole life is this. I believe 100% that God is sovereign in control. But Pastor Cody also believes that man has free will. How do you bring those two together? Poof, my brain just popped and melted, okay? Sometimes these are hard to pull together. So let's let these stories, let's let God show us how is he. he is sovereign and he is in control. So here we go. Genesis 37. Remember, there's Abraham. He had Isaac. Isaac had... Esau and Jacob. And Jacob was the one chosen. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed. The land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Genesis 37. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the 
sons of Zilpah. Now, jo- Jacob had children with not just one wife, but a few. So we will get back to the tribes. We'll look at the twelve later. But So he's with his brothers, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report of them. So right away we begin with a tattletale. How many of you have brothers and sisters? <laughs> Tattletales, huh? That means all of you that raised your hand, yep, you were the tattletale, okay? So we got a tattletale. Now Israel, now remember Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and we'll get to that another time, the significance of that. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, just like his dad, he's picking favorites. We got a perfect family here? No, we don't. We have tattletales, we have a dad who picks his favorites. It's tough. Because he had been born to him of his late age and made a richly ornamented robe for him, the coat of many colors. We know this story. Look at verse 4. When his brothers saw that his father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Wow. Already in the story we have hatred. I'm not going to have you raise your hand. But how many of you know that there's hatred sometimes in your families? Man, there's just suffering. What's going on here? Joseph had a dream. This isn't going to help. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were all mining sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright when your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. We went from a tattletale to the proud and arrogant, look at me. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Now some of you understand hate and family, and maybe some of you understand even the words all the more. What's the question we're supposed to be asking here? Is God in control? Now some of you who've been in church your whole life go, yes, he is in control. You're like little robots. But is he in control? Let's carry on. Then he had another dream. Boy, if I kept having these dreams, I'd just keep my mouth quiet, right? Then he told it to his brothers. Oh, here we go again. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well, his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the grounds before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in his mind. How many of you know the rest of the story? The Paul Harvey, not that version, but the rest of the story. See, when you read this, if you know the story, you just go, little do they know God's plan. Verse 12. Now his brothers have gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, his son, 
As you know, your brothers are grazing flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. Or you could say, here am I. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. So he goes, Hebron is just south of Jerusalem. He goes past Jerusalem, way up 50, 60 miles. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, I love this verse because this verse kind of talks about me. A man found him wandering in the fields. I mean, that's the kind of person, you get me up in the mountains, I'm just going to wander around. So not only does he have dreams, he's kind of like a dreamer, just kind of out there floating around. So this man finds him wandering around and asks him, what are you looking for? Verse 16, he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let us go on to Dothan, which is even further north. And here it comes. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. Verse 18. But they, the brothers, saw him in the distance. Now this week I was going to try to map out, I was going to go to a football field and have my kids walk at 100 yards, and then maybe walk at 200 yards, and just have them walk until I could notice that they were my daughters, or figure that out. So maybe tonight when I'm at the car show, I'll walk away and I'll try to see someone and see how far it is. So I'm guessing it's about 150 yards when you kind of, oh, that's who that person is. So somewhere between 100 and 150 yards, they notice him. And in that short time, this is what happens. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Wow. Hatred and hatred can build up to the point where they're going to kill him. Let me just say this as a side note. Pastor Cody is not the kind of pastor who takes stories in the Old Testament and finds nice little cute principles to, to learn from. That is secondary to the number one principle, what does this teach us about God? Okay? Is hatred good? No. Can hatred build up to the point where you want to kill someone? Yes. We'll get to maybe some of those points, but let's look at the primary issue here. Is God in control? Verse 19. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns, a big well, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, they tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him in a cistern here in the desert and just don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. I mean, his goal was like, just throw him in the pit and as we go, I'll sneak back, grab him, we'll bring him back to his dad. So when Joseph came to his brothers, this all happened within 100 yards. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the great, beautiful colored robe, the coat of many colors that he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, didn't have any water in it. Verse 25, they sat down to eat their meal. 
And they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they're on their way to take it down to Egypt. It's very important. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up with his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up. Imagine the hope of Joseph. Oh, I'm being rescued. They're just being cruel to me. Instead, they pull him up and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Wow. That's crazy. That's hard. This is not the perfect story as you think that you would find in a Bible. But it is the perfect story because it talks about God's sovereign hand. And let me just take some time and look at a few things in Scripture that we can learn from this. How can brothers plan to kill each other? How many of you have siblings that are the same gender? You you have a sister or you have brothers who are brothers. (laughs) How many of you sometimes can kind of understand that kind of animosity that you have? I have a little brother, little Jeffy, and there's times he thought that a lot about me and I probably thought that a lot about him. And my mom probably thought I'm surprised you're still alive today because there were times in the household where we were just, ah, at each other's throats. But that's not killing how could, how could people get to the point? This is God's chosen people. I will choose you. I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. And they're about to kill each other? God's plan is going to fail, right? Listen, there's something we have to know about life. Evil is in this world. A couple weeks ago, maybe it was a month ago, you hear about the shooting in Aurora, Colorado. How can this be? There's people killing people. What's going on? Evil is in this world. Again, Genesis 3, through 11. There's evil in this world. There's misery, pain, and suffering because of sin. How do we reconcile this? How do we can say, well, yeah, brothers are going to kill brothers. How can we say they're shooting in Columbine? How can we say that all this stuff? Well, the world has some answers. The world says this. In fact, the jury's still out with uh, the Holmes kid that shot all those people. They'll either say, well, there are political reasons he did it. Uh, we're in a day where we always want to align things and problems with political things. Or most likely they'll say, well, he has psychological disorders. Even though he was a grad student going for his PhD and the government was giving him money because he was so brilliant. Okay. Or they'll say, well, it was culture. Look at the kind of movie he was at. Look at it. He's well, the world's going to have many answers. But we as Christians, our answers are a bit different. Because our answers come from this. Our answers come from Scripture. There's evil in this world. We first think biblically. We are to draw our conclusions from what we are taught in Scripture. We live in a fallen world. And when we hear like shootings like that, some of you probably should just go, I'm not surprised. In fact, praise God, he restrains evil or most of us would be dead, right? God restrains evil. 
But how does God answer evil? He just doesn't answer it, but he provides a solution. Listen to this. In the midst of evil, in the midst of pain and just sin, he just doesn't give an answer. He provides the solution found in the cross. It always comes to the cross. Amen? There's evil in this world, but God just doesn't answer it. He provides the solution, and evil is answered in the cross. God's Son is the most righteous and innocent person, is killed by evil man, and then abolishes sin. Wow! Is God in control? Let's let Scripture answer that. Is He in control? Think of the most evil thing you can think of. Some of you think Hitler. Some of you maybe think of World War II stuff like that, or Stalin, or just some of you think um, other things. The most evil thing, the cross. What was God's hand in that? Was he sovereign? Was he in control? God's sovereign control is not lost in the midst of evil. And in the cross we see both the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. So take your Bibles quickly and turn to Acts chapter 2. This, this verse, every time I read this, I just go, oh, there it is. Acts chapter 2. You got the Gospels, then Acts chapter 2. Now remember I said, Pastor Cody believes that God is completely sovereign. He's in control. And there's the free will of man. Some people want to come up with cool ways to put those two together. I have not found a cool way to put together. I just, that's the way it is and I believe it. I'm just, maybe I'm just too small-brained and I just don't get it, but that's the way it is. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. So here's Peter. He's, he's preaching, he's sharing. Look at verse 23. Listen, even in the worst evil, the killing of God, the Son of God, God is still in control. He's sovereign in it, and there's free will. Wow, this, this verse just, here it is. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Is God in control? Yes. Even in the most horrific event in the history of time? Yes. His set purpose. God is in control. Comma, semicolon, and you, here's the free will of man, you with the help of wicked men. God is in control. So listen, when evil comes knocking at your door, burning down your house, wicked things happen, is God in control? He is in control. It's one of the foundations we need to know. He is sovereign. Even in the most heinous of things, the death of his son. God is in control. So this is the line I want you to just think of. God is in total, constant control of all events of your life. Always remember, God is in control. Even when there's evil in the world, he's in control. Let's go back to Genesis 37. Okay, God is in control. How can this be? He's in control. Look what happens to him. He gets thrown in a pit. He gets sold into slavery. How can this be for good? How can the selling of a brother be for good and just into slavery? 
Why do we have pain and suffering? Can pain be for good? Now here's a dangerous thing I might say. Can there be good in cancer? Oh, I hate cancer. And I'm just a young guy. I've had one dear friend die of cancer. And I just, whoa. Can there be good? Can some good result out of even something like suffering? The world will give us their answers and verdicts. But again, we need to think differently on biblical terms. We first think biblically. Can God use this evil for good? What kind of God can take our evil and use it for our salvation? Why do things go bad for people who are His own? The purpose is this, that God would receive glory in it. For He is sovereign in your story. Genesis 37 doesn't end with him being sold into slavery. Let's go to the last chapter of Genesis. Chapter 50. Here is the verse. It's one of my favorite verses. This is an anchor. I need to remind myself all the time of this verse. Genesis 50. Starting with verse 18. And remember, no matter how dark it gets for you, remember God has purpose to bring glory to His name even in the midst of suffering. God is, is God in control? Is he sovereign? Think of that as you read this story, and you'll end with this here, the last chapter. Verse 18. His brothers came to him and threw themselves down before him. The dreamer, his dreams now become reality. They throw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Verse 20, here it is. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Even in the midst of suffering, when they intended to to kill him, destroy him, sell him off forever, God had a plan. And his intention was not just also that flowers come up, that God would save many people, even in suffering. Is God in control even in the midst of suffering? Yes, He is. So some of you who are suffering right now, this week, read this section, 37 through 50, at the end of every chapter say, God, are you in control? In this narrative, you're going to say yes, and then ask this daunting question. God, are you in control of the narrative of my life? And if you don't have an answer yet, it's okay. Let Him show you. Because I can guarantee when a son asks for bread, he will not give you a stone. Amen? He will show you that he is in control. He's in control. God had a plan. They intended it for evil. God intended this for good. Praise God. God can and he does all this work together for good. And God will use a plan of suffering for his purpose. What's my favorite book of the Bible? Romans. Turn to that quickly. Romans chapter 8, the chapter you need to memorize. Memorize this chapter. Soak it in you. Romans chapter 8. Romans eight twenty eight. What a powerful verse. Especially when you see it in the full context of Scripture, in God's redemptive plan of history, this verse is an anchor to the soul. 
It's not just a cute little verse you put on a cute poster with flowers. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. All things, all things work for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So be reminded that in your suffering, God is there. We as Christians walk by faith, not by sight. We're getting close to the end. Turn back to Genesis. Go to chapter 45. Genesis 45. Genesis 45, starting with verse 4. It's the first time Joseph makes himself, he reveals himself that he's just not the prime minister, his brother. Listen, as you think of this question, is God in control? 45 verse 4, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for sin selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. For the next five years, there will be no more plowing or reaping. But God sent me. Here's that phrase again. God sent me ahead of you to preserve you as a remnant on the earth to save your lives by the great deliverance. And ending with verse 8 here. So then, it was not you who sent me but God. God is in control. God is in total and consistent control of all the events of your life. He is in control. So church, know that God is sovereign. Know that He is in control. Even when there's pain and suffering, He is in control. And know this, that there is not chance in Scripture It doesn't read this. It doesn't read, the story of Joseph is this. By chance, his father gave him a coat. By chance, he told some dreams to tick off his brothers. By chance, there happened to be a pit there. By chance, a caravan was coming by. God is in control. As Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. God is in total and constant control of all the events of your life. God is in control. He's active. So if you are suffering, if you have hatred, if you have jealousy, if you have sin and pain, get rid of it. And know that He is sovereign. He's in control. Don't let circumstances rule how you understand who God is. Let God rule how you understand your circumstances. We're going to be talking about this for months. Don't let circumstances dictate how you worship. Instead, let God dictate how you live in your circumstances. Because He is in control. He is sovereign. He is all about the good of His people for the fame of His name. It's not by chance you're here.
He's in control. Let's pray.